Galatians chapter 4, we will be reading verses 8 to 20. And while you turn there, I just wanted to uh, tell you a little bit about what we did last night uh, at the Corn Maze. We had a fantastic time. It's a fantastic setup uh, over at the Schwartz Family Farms. Um, Tons of stuff to do, and we made use just about all of it, I think. Uh, We did have a really good time. I don't think we lost anyone. We did a head count before and after. We may have brought somebody else home. But so far, no complaints, so I think we're okay. Um, But yeah, we just had a fantastic time fellowshipping with one another. Uh, Just a really, really fun night. Um, Glad for those who were able to make it. For those who weren't, we'll do more. We'll do more. Uh, Speaking of, next Sunday is our harvest party. So turn around, and we're doing something else. Uh, Harvest party, that will be at the Spots. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have food games. We will have a hayride. It's going to be a lot of whole, whole lot of fun. Make sure you get out there. Uh, and a note on that, we will actually be meeting at 6 o'clock uh, next time at the spots. It's not 6.15 like we normally do, so we get a little bit more time to have a lot more fun. Um, that being said, young adults, this is also the week that we meet at 6. TJ, looking <laughs> uh, Meeting at 6 this week. Uh, we're going to have dinner. We'll be here. Uh, we're having dinner together, and it's just going to be a time, good time of fellowship. Uh, any other folk who have, are in college or just out of college fresh, come on out. It's a real low-key night where we're just going to have dinner with each other, um, hang out, and just have a really good time. So that'll be this Tuesday, 6 o'clock here at the church as well. Uh, I think I covered all announcements. Let's hit uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that don't even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Jesus Christ himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I am sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I am telling you the truth? Those false teachers so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They are trying to shut you off from me so you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that is all right, but let them do it in all the time, not just when I am with you. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. They will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone, but at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this day you've given us, for this chance to come and worship in your house, uh, to proclaim your name, uh, to proclaim your power over us, Lord, and we, we thank you for this time. Lord, I ask that you would bless this service today, bless those sitting in this room with us and those sitting around the church listening in, 
and those sitting at home as well, Lord, I ask that you would be with them, uh, each and every one of us. Uh, Be with us today, be with us in this service now, be with us as we go uh, throughout our day and throughout our week, Lord. Uh, Bless this time we have. In your name we pray. Amen. In 1982, my wife and my family and I, we moved from upstate New York to Lancaster County, and we were inundated from going from farm country to city. 1982 was when I began our study at Lancaster Bible College, and periodically we would have to go into the city, and it reminded us of the first time we were ever in Lancaster. There are certain streets in Lancaster that only go one way. Prince Street will take you south one way. Duke Street will take you north one way. King and Queen, obviously they go in different directions anyway. We were in the center city. I I don't know for what event we were in the center city of Lancaster. But you, you know you're going the wrong way when, first of all, you're going with traffic and you turn, and all of a sudden you're going against traffic. We found ourselves in that predicament one afternoon. I, can't, I think we were coming out on Duke, and we decided that, well, I decided that um, we would turn onto a wrong one-way street. And as, as we turned, thank the Lord that there was a parking space right there that I could quick pull in because what are you going to do when traffic is coming at you? Light has turned green. You're going the wrong way. We sat there long enough, and sure enough, the intelligence of my wife, it's beautiful. She said, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Just sit and be quiet, and maybe no one will notice until we hear the clip-clop of horses' hooves coming up behind us. Lancaster City has policemen on horses, and sure enough, the policeman comes, and my window was rolled up before I rolled it down because I was kind of hoping he wouldn't notice we were going the wrong way. But he, he took his billy club and he tapped on my window, and he's just as smart as my wife. He said, you're going the wrong way. He was gracious enough to understand our story, and he stopped traffic and allowed us to get turned around and go the the proper direction. I doubt any of you other men have found yourselves in that situation. But to be reminded twice within five minutes that you're going the wrong way is is pretty humbling. I wonder if the Apostle Paul, as he is introducing this, this theme this morning, I wonder if he might have used that that statement to himself. You guys are going the wrong way. You're going the opposite direction 
that you started out as. What's interesting about this passage from verse 8 down to verse 20 is that it can be divided into two different sections. From verse 8 down to verse 11, we see the people's problem. They, they have a problem. We're going to look into that. But verses 12 to 20, it's the preacher's, if you will, his plea. The preacher's plea. The problem is set for us in verse 8 when it, when it says, it says, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. And in verse 9, the Apostle Paul is saying to them, you're going the wrong way because what was happening is that once they came to trust Christ, by grace through faith, it seems that they are beginning to collect unto themselves the things that they were set free from. They're going the wrong way. What they're doing literally is going back to idolatry, the worship of idols. It's not too long, and I don't know if the program is still on the television or not, it's, but there is a program of talent called American Idol. We have idols. Let me give you a definition of idols. An idol is any person, place, thing, thought, or event that replaces our allegiance and worship of God. It's any person, place, thing, thought, or event that replaces our allegiance and worship of God. It can be as innocent as someone said this morning, innocent as a Drinking of coffee. It can also be as desperate as a horrific lifestyle. It's anything that will replace our allegiance and worship of God. But what's interesting in this passage is what the children of Galatia are doing is that they're not really garnering under themselves anything new. They're going back to the old things from which they were saved. I don't believe there can be anything more disheartening to a preacher if an individual who was rescued from alcohol or drugs or, yes, even prostitution would sense that that's what they need to go back to. In a way, as I was studying this passage and talking with my wife, I, I've, I've come to understand in a little bit more intensive way of what the Apostle Paul is getting at. He's seeing a group of people that on his different missions trips, his missionary journeys, 
He's given them the Word of God, and they were hungry for it. And they came to know Christ in a very dynamic way. And then to hear that all of a sudden they've forsaken all of that and have gone back to what they were rescued from. I don't know if we could just blame it all on the Judaizers. Obviously, as the Apostle Paul is developing his argument in chapter 1 and 2, to set forth that he is an apostle based upon Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And then in chapter 3 and 4, which we are in now, he's made the argument that justification, being set, if you will, not guilty by God, is by grace through faith alone. Not by works, not by law, but by faith. But even in that, these individuals were making choices. Choices always have consequences, don't they? doesn't matter. They could have good consequences or they could have very negative consequences. You forget your wife's birthday. That's a negative consequence. That was never so evident as one day I was working and all of a sudden my boss came up to me and said, I just got a phone call from your wife. Oh, is everything okay? And he said, yeah. He said, but you forgot something. No, I had my lunch pail. I had everything that I needed. No, he said, that's not what you forgot. You forgot her birthday. Lord have mercy, I didn't go straight home after work. I knew what I needed to do. Stopped off and you get a dozen long stem red roses, her favorite flower. And then you walk through the door on your knees. That was a good consequence because she forgave me. But they were making choices of negative consequences. Let me share with you what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul lists for us in chapter 4 three definitions of these idols. The first one we see in verse 3 of chapter 4 where he refers to them as elements of the world. He reminds them that you were in bondage of these. They were elements of the world. Well, what are the elements of the world? Described for us, I think, not necessarily in this passage per se, but given to us in 1 John chapter 2 what the elements of the world are. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Verse 15 of chapter 2 of 1 John. They were in bondage to them. The second thing he he gives as a description is in verse 8 when he refers to them as not gods. They're not who you think they are. There's one thing I do know about idolatry is more importantly what it cannot do. Described for us in the Old Testament as as Isaiah writes, is that they they cannot hear, they cannot speak, 
They cannot walk. In other words, they can't do anything for you. But in reality, what you find yourself doing, you're doing everything for them. It's an emptiness. It's a life that is not filled with any peace of joy because you never hear them say thank you. Or they never give back to you blessings. You find yourself trapped in a system that can never be fulfilled. The third place is in verse 9, is he calls them, if you will, beggarly elements. Beggarly elements. These three terms that describe idolatry give us the understanding of what the Apostle Paul is saying. You're going the wrong way. He highlights that by giving to them in verse 9, an understanding. He says, you know God. But better yet, he says, God knows you. That's the relationship. That word know is, can be described in three different ways in the Greek language. It could be know of something through experience. You burn your hand on a hot flat iron, you know that you don't touch the flat iron again. You can know things by gathering information. Two plus two still equals four. Is that, is that correct? I mean, I think our government has switched that. Two plus two equals two million. And then there's the kind of no, the intimate no, that when you get into that relationship of husband and wife, all of a sudden you just know. My wife knows me that well, and I know her that well, that even without speaking, we know what we're thinking. That's the intimacy that the Apostle Paul says, that's the kind that God knows you. He knows everything about you. In other portions of Scripture, in the book of Matthew, I really like when he says he, he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows, as, Psalm, as David writes in Psalm 139, he knows my lying down and my, my rising ups. He, he knows the time frame of my life. He knows the events of my life even before they happen. And when we come into that relationship through faith, we begin to know God by experience. You've seen his grace. You know of his love and his protection and his provision for you. And at times when you sit back and you scratch your head and you kind of wonder, how did that happen? God knows. And the Apostle Paul is saying, why are you leaving that? And chasing after idols that don't know. 
He refers to them in, in verse uh, 10 as days, months, seasons, and years. Some believe, some individuals who have a lot more degrees than I do believe that it's in reference to the Judaizers trying to take them back under the law, and so they're observing the different parts, if you will, of the worship of law. There were seasons when you had to bring offerings to God. There were holidays that that you had to respect for God. There were years, years of jubilee, that you had to acknowledge before God. And then there's the other theologians that refer to these as being pagan holidays. I think you can say anything that garners our allegiance and worship from God, no matter what it is, is an idol. Nicole, I want to thank you for reminding us that there are 11 weeks till Christmas. Sometimes that can become an idol to me. I'm the biggest kid. We seem to set a limit as to what we're doing every year. But I say to my wife in silence, I have another plan. It's sort of like that, um, that movie, um, forgot it, Ocean's Eleven. You think we need one more? We'll get one more. How many of you have seen that movie? Let your praise be known to Jesus. Yeah, Some of you are like this, really religious. <laughs> Some of you are bold in your faith. You think we need one more? We'll get one more. And yet even as Nicole was giving us this Wonderful presentation. Every year we put together two boxes. And we think we've done enough. I think this year we're going to do four. Not to garner any praise from you or from God. But there's two more children somewhere. And needs to know. If we would just maybe add one more box to what we've done in the past, how many children have come to know Jesus? Did you catch the, the one little girl saying that she read the story to her grandmother and grandfather and they trusted Christ? The thing that hurts me the most is maybe that's something we need to have in our cities of, New, of the United States. A nation that maybe political announcement 
a nation that was once established under the precepts of the word of God, has long forgotten the map. We're like the kids in the corn maze. We're going to think we can get through this by ourselves. And, and Jesus is back there saying, I got the map. The sad thing of it is, this Christmas child might be found illegal in our cities. But I'm glad that there's other children that could come to know Jesus. So in a way, I understand what Paul is going through. As now he, he turns to his plea for them. And he shares with them three things. And in verse, if you will, he shares a heart of concern. In verse 11, he mentions it by saying, I'm afraid for you. In verse, chapter, in verse 16, he says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And then in verse 20, he says, I would like to be present with you. He has a huge concern. He wants to get back to these people, to get them back on track. To get them away from the path that they're going and to encourage them to get back to the place where they need to be. His concern is that deep that he describes it as a mother in labor again. A heart of concern, he has a heart of compassion in chapter, in verse 13. We see he has a compassion for souls. He said, I preach the gospel to you. And even when I had this eye affliction, you were that concerned for me. You weren't really looking at me as being that brash or that shined up person, that evangelist that comes in in a whirlwind and leaves in a hurricane. No, I, I came to you and I was in bad shape. And yet you weren't interested in how I looked. You grabbed hold of what I had to say. I preached the gospel to you because I, I wanted your souls to come to know Jesus. And not only that, but he had compassion for their growth in verse 18 when he, when he makes mention of the fact that it's good to be zealous for good things. I used to be zealous for the New York Giants. Not anymore. I've not watched a single game. I refuse to watch any professional sports. There wasn't a Sunday that I would get, it used to be that I wouldn't try to find the New York Giants on. And you all know that. But this year, I don't care. I really don't. I'm not zealous for that anymore. I'm, I'm zealous for you and for your lives. 
and for your souls and your children's souls and our community's souls. For souls that are going to be around the world that we're never going to see this side of glory. That's my passion now. Because the New York Giants and that team is going to stay here. All of that paraphernalia stays here. It's people that go to glory. And that's what we need to be about. He had compassion for their souls. He had compassion for their growth. But he also had a heart of correction. The heart of correction was this, is that he wants to reveal to them the truth of those who are leading them away. In verse 17, he says, They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. The Apostle Paul wanted a correction. I guess that's what the Word of God does. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm sorry, in chapter Two verse uh, three verse sixteen. That the word of God is inspired, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction. And that's what Paul wanted to do. You're going the wrong way. Come back. Forsake the idols of this world. And come back to Jesus. And that would be his plea today. To us individually. And to us as a church. You'll be less embarrassed. And better at peace. Coming back to Jesus. Let's pray. God, it's... It's difficult at times of passages that we'd rather hear the the exciting things of passages of Scripture. But there's times we need to be awakened to the truth or reality of our lives. And these were believer people that wanted to forsake following Jesus and chase after idols. And we can do the same thing. God, I pray that you would awaken us. And still in us, oh God, that the joy of knowing you is, is all that we need. To follow after you is worth all the riches of the world. And God, I pray that you would equip us to be that compassionate for our neighbors and also for our friends that sit in the same pew as we do. That we would tell them the good things that are in Jesus Christ. And I praise you and thank you in your name. Amen.